Thank you, team. Thank you, worship team. Y'all are fantastic. Fantastic. Mike, I love the little fill-ins you do right there. It just feel, man, it fills my heart. It's so good. You and Wayne both do that so well. So appreciative. Um, we're going to be going to 1 Kings chapter 1. We've got a lot of scripture today. So I'm going I'm to encourage you, if you've got your Bible, pull it out because you're going to want to follow along. It will be on the screen behind me. And I gotta, before we begin reading, though, I've got to take a, a, a second to be honest with you. I was up here a second ago saying we should trust the Lord, all of our hearts. And, and at the same time, on the other side of my heart, I'm thinking... Man, it's almost 11 o'clock. We got this much time. We got to get into the window. And I'm, I'm not always, you know, everyone always says, do as I say, not as I do. We're all on this path of holiness, trying to grow into wholeness together. Um, in general, we do try to plan, you know, our worship service is like 70 minutes because we do communion each week. That's kind of our, our target window. And I started to think the other day and it hit me again this morning, like, I forgot the Bible verse that said worship has to be 70 minutes. I'm not saying we're going to go two hours today. I'm not going to do that to you. My, my uncle, was, he's a Pentecostal minister. He, he retired. And I remember the first time I went to their two and a half hour worship service, I was like, I'm a different kind of Christian than them. But, and I'm not going to keep us that long, I promise. But in my mind, I'm thinking, should I cut out part of the scripture? Because we've got a lot of scripture. And I'm like, you know, I think people really like the Bible here. I don't think people are going to be upset if I, if I read from the Bible a little bit longer than normal. We're not going to go, you know, two hours. But I, I think it's important we hear from this story together. All right? All right? So now I'm spending even more time. Here we go. We're going to talk. Here we go. First Kings chapter 1, verse 5. Now, Adonijah, there's lots of names in here, too. I try and say them real fast so I don't mess them up, but I'm, I'm just saying. Now, Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. Now, his father had never rebuked him, asking, why do you behave as you do? His father's David, by the way. He was very handsome and was next born after Absalom. Adonijah conferred with Joab, son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they gave him their support. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaniah said of Jeho- Jehoiada, it's difficult. Nathan, the prophet, Shimei of Re, and David's special guard did not join Adonijah. Adonijah then sacrificed sheep, cattle, and fattened calves at the stone of Zoheleth and Inregal. He invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and the royal officials of Judah. But he did not invite Nathan, the prophet, nor Benaiah, or the... The back screen went out. Or the, see, I read from up there, by the way. I don't have this memorized. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. I don't have these scriptures memorized. We have the cheat screen back here. If you need to take it like a, a second. To be like, oh, what's he reading from? Sorry, that's the cheat screen. All right. Or the special guard, or his brother, Solomon. Then Nathan asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king and our Lord David knows nothing about it? Now then, let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son, Solomon. Go into King David and say to him, my Lord, the king, did you not swear to me your servant? Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me and he will sit on my throne. When, why then has Adonijah become king? While you are still there talking to the king, I will come in and add my words to what you have said. Pause. All right? We're about to read some more scripture in just a second, but I want to make sure we know where we are in the story. So for four weeks, we've been journeying with David. We started with David and his relationship to Samuel. 
Samuel was the one who anointed him king after Saul. We then looked at David's relationship to Jonathan, who is his best friend. Jonathan was a complicated figure who followed his father all the way into a battle he knew he would lose, all the way into a battle until death, but never betrayed his friend nor his father. Last week, we looked at Nathan. And Nathan was one of the few men who ever spoke truth into David's life in a way that he particularly needed after a major indiscretion and after he chose that which God would not have him choose. And today we're going to be looking at David's relationship to his children. And so this story we're setting up is the relationship at the end of David's life that he has with his sons, Adonijah and Solomon. For this story to make a little more sense, though, we should kind of backtrack as to what was going on after we saw David and Nathan together and up until this point. So you know where we are in the story of David's life. So after David and the Bathsheba, after David had Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed, the son that they conceived died of illness. But soon thereafter, Bathsheba bore another son named Solomon. Solomon is who we just heard about in this story. Solomon was one of David's sons, but David had many sons. And David had a complicated relationship with his children. So much so that David's oldest son, Amnon, was very attracted to his sister, Tamar. And this part's a little bit graphic, so I'm not going to give you the exact, I'm not going to read verse by verse, but if you ever do read this part in 2 Samuel, just know that it's, this is in the Bible, but it's still really tough to hear because it's very difficult. It's a very difficult story. It's very difficult for many people probably in this room to hear. But that David's son, Amnon, abused his sister, Tamar. As further abuse, he throws her out of his house and will have nothing to do with her. And then she goes to her brother, Absalom, tells him what's happened, and Absalom is furious with his brother, Amnon. So much so that for two years, this fury grows until he can lure him away, and then he kills him. He kills his brother because of what he did to his sister. So Absalom then like retreats. He flees. He's in exile. For three years, he has to leave his family. When he comes back three years later, he quickly endears himself back to the people of Jerusalem, David's kingdom of Jerusalem. So Absalom becomes this great figure. Everybody loves him. He's this great warrior. He's, you know, he's, he represents you know, making sure to take care of the underprivileged. And everybody loves Absalom to the point in which he decides that he should be king and no longer David. He gets an army. He gets people in the army on his side. He gets military leaders on his side. And he ends up usurping the throne and kicking David out of Jerusalem. Actually, David flees for his life from his son and his son's army. David is, has fled, but for a number of chapters, we hear about how he makes relationships with neighboring communities until he can build up another army big enough to take on the army of Israel in Jerusalem. There's this epic battle in the forest to where David tells his men, you know, I know you have to go to battle, but please do not hurt my son, Absalom. Do not hurt my, do not kill him. But nonetheless, after the battle's over, David's army has won and the people, the, the people in his army did kill his son. And he was so upset about it. He was, he was crying. He was furious. And he had his military official who killed his son killed also. But David then takes back over Jerusalem as the king again. All this is going on with his children. These aren't even outside forces. We then hear lots of other chapters about David battling outside forces. David battling the Philistines. David battling the Amorites. The rest of David's life is filled with turmoil, with war, with battle. It was just like nonstop. David has a, a lot going on, a lot on his plate, and it's constant up until the point where he's older and is about to die. And that's where we pick up our story today. So David is about to die, and they're not sure who should be king. 
because he's never told anybody. People just kind of assumed maybe it would be Adonijah because he's the oldest and he's the one after Absalom. But David had already told Bathsheba that Solomon could be king. Well, I don't know if everybody else knew this, so Adonijah takes it on himself and just tells everybody, hey, I'm going to be king. I'm obviously, you know, even the Bible says he was very handsome. I'm obviously the most handsome, so, I mean, that's all the qualities you need to be king, right? And so he says, I'm going to be king, and he gets priests, he gets military officials, and they all agree, yes, you should be king. And he goes, and he has these rituals and ceremonies, and he sacrifices animals, and he becomes the king in these people's eyes. But there are some other military officials, and there's some other priests, like Zadok and Nathan, who, who think otherwise, They think that Solomon should be king because that is what David told Bathsheba, but not everybody knows this. And so that's where we're picking back up the story. Nathan advises Bathsheba, hey, you should go tell David what's going on. See, David is is older, he's in bed. He doesn't know any of these things are happening. He doesn't know that Adonijah has, has placed himself as king. And so Solomon tells Bathsheba, go tell him and tell him to remember the promise he made to you that your son Solomon should be king. And, so she, and he says, when you do this, I'll come in and back you up. I got your back, all right? And so she does this. She goes to tell David these things. She says, hey, I don't know if you know what's going on. Adonijah's made himself king. He's your next oldest son, I know, but you promised that Solomon could be king. You need to uphold your word. And David says, okay. David agrees to do so. David says, that should be so. Let, let's make that happen. And that's where we're gonna pick back up the text, okay? We're gonna read the rest of the story starting in verse 38. So is that the priest's? Nathan the prophet, Beniah son of Jehoiada, the Kerites, the Pelicites went down and had Solomon mount King David's mule and they escorted him to Gihon. Zadok the priest took out the horn of oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon. Then they sh- sounded the trumpet and all the people shouted, long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing pipes and rejoicing greatly so that the ground shook with the sound. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they were finishing their feast. On hearing the sound of the trumpet, Joab asks, what is the meaning of all this noise in the city? Even as he was speaking, Jonathan, son of Abiathar, the priest arrived. Adonijah said, come in, you are a worthy man. Like you must be, you, a worthy man like you must be bringing us good news. Not at all, Jonathan answered. Our Lord David has made Solomon king. The king has sent with him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah son of Jehoiada, the Kerithites and the Pelathites, and they have put him on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king in Gihon. From there they have gone up cheering and the city resounds with it. That's the noise that you hear. Moreover, Solomon has taken his seat on the royal throne. Also, the royal officials have come to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, may your, son make Sol- may, your, may your God make Solomon's name more famous than yours and his throne greater than yours. And the king bowed in worship on his bed and said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has allowed my eyes to see the successor of my throne today. At all this, all Ananias' guests rose in alarm and dispersed. But Ananias, in fear of Solomon, went and took hold of the horns of the altar then Solomon was told, Adonijah is afraid that King Solomon is going, is, and he is clinging to the horn to the altar. Solomon says, let King Solomon swear, he says, let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to the death by the sword. All right? So Solomon has been made king. He, David honors his word and puts Solomon on the throne. 
And Adonijah is just then terrified. Can you imagine what it would be like if you're like part of Adonijah's crew? And then all of a sudden you're having this party because your, your dude's king and he's awesome. You're so excited. Our, our man's a king now. We're going to be in the graces of the king. We're all going to be rich. It's going to be amazing. And then all of a sudden you hear this noise that you're not a part of, like some sort of commotion going on outside. Y'all are inside having a party. Outside you hear this noise. And you're like, what is going on out there? Joab asked, what, what, is, what is all this commotion? And then all of a sudden a messenger comes in and they say, oh, you are a worthy man. You must have good news for us. And he looks at him and he's like, that's a big old bag of nope. He's <laughs> like, so you see what happened? What just happened was this. You thought you were king, but David pulled a fast one and you're not king. And can you imagine like, the awkward silence? Just, just picture yourself in this room and everybody is partying. It's great. People are excited. And all of a sudden just like changes. You can feel the tension. And it's just like awkward silence. And everybody like kind of looks around like, okay, bye, <laughs> I'm out. Because they don't want to be caught there with this false king or else they're going to be killed. They're going to be charged with treason. They're going to be imprisoned. And so everybody just bails. They all run away. And Adonijah is so scared that he goes and grabs the horn of the altar. And the reason he does this is because this is a sacred place where you're not supposed to spill blood. That's where the animals are sacrificed in order to make reconciliation with God. And so he's like, if I go there, I can grab the horns of the altar. I'll be safe. And that's when they tell Solomon what's going on. He says, as long as he proves himself to be a worthy man, nothing will come, no harm will come to him. But actually, a chapter later, which we're not going to read, he ends up killing him anyway um, because he asked a question that he wasn't supposed to ask. Y'all, you, you thought you had family issues? <laughs> I'm just saying, I mean, like, y'all ain't got nothing on the sibling rivalry of David's kids. Like, you and your, your, your sister, your brother... Y'all argue, I know. But I mean, this is, this is intense things. And, and this is what I mean throughout this whole series when I said we tend to put biblical characters on a pedestal. Um, think that they're amazing at all things. David, man after God's own heart, he's, he's so great. He, but how many of you are going to take David's parenting class tomorrow? <laughs> I mean, Parenting 101 offered by King David probably is not going to have a whole lot of attendance. And so as we hear this word, as this word comes to us from the scripture, the question for us is, what does it mean for our lives? We're probably asking, why are we ending this series here? Why are, we, why are we finishing up this series about David in such a weird place? Well, I think for one, it's natural because we started the story when David comes onto the scene with his anointing from Samuel. And so we're going to end the story at David's ending. There's actually details about David's death right after this. There's a song of praise and all these things about how great David is. But this is the end of David's story. And it's interesting the legacy he leaves behind in the moment. Now, we all think of David as, you know, this great Israel king. But when you get into these details, I mean, it's not like he was like the picture perfect dad. It's not like he had everything all figured out. Our Bible heroes are, are like us. They're complicated people. They're complicated people working through life and life's issues and the difficulties. And so when I hear this text, I cannot help but think, what does it look like for us to care for those closest to us? That's the first thing I, I kind of ask when I hear this text. And also, how well are we doing at empowering others? Because when we think about David's life, there's so many things to celebrate. But when I hear these stories, I can't help but ask these questions. This first one, what does it look like to care for those closest to you? We believe that the person of Christ has given us instruction to care for others greater than we care for ourselves. 
The lens of Jesus calls us to take on the mantle of selflessness and humility by putting others first. I tend to fail at doing that. I think also, too, we, we tend to think of, of doing this you know, for people who, are less, um, who have less wealth than we do or people who are less privileged than we are. But I also think this means, like, what do we do to care for those who are closest to us? Your children, your spouses, your friends, your parents, your family. I'm sure David was probably a person just like us with lots on his plate, right? Like you and me, he probably doesn't have a ton of disposable time. He had wars to wage and a nation to build, a city to run, a holy ark to reclaim. I bet if you'd ask David, hey, David, how are you? He'd be like, I'm good, just busy, you know? You know, you know how it is, just busy. And we'd probably say, I know, man, I'm so busy. Let me tell you how busy I am. And then we'd start listing the things that we've got going on and immediately we'd find ourselves in my least favorite game. Have you ever played this game? It's the let me prove I'm busier than you are game. Have you ever played, I mean, let's be honest, most of us play this game with regularity. And it's not intentional, it just kind of happens, right? You, you start out by saying like, oh, hey, how are you? And you're like, I'm good, I'm just busy, you know, I've got to, I got to get the, I got to get, you know, get going. I got two kids. I get dropped off to school and then to my morning meeting by eight. You know, you know how it is. To which other person's like, yeah, I know. I've got three kids. I got to get to three different schools and get to my morning meeting by 745. And then you're like, oh yeah, I know. And then, you know, I've totally, I got to get my kids afterwards and I got to get them to their, drop them off of their practices so I can get to core power yoga three times a week and then make sure that, you know, I've got food at home by the time we get done and pick up Chick-fil-A. Like, oh yeah, I totally, I totally get it. I've got to get my three kids to all their different things too, but I teach core power yoga, so I have to be there earlier. And so then I've got to, and we don't even have time for food, let alone, I mean, come on, we got to get to bed because we've got to get our homework done. We've got to get our common core math put together. I mean, you know, have you ever played that game? It's like my least favorite game on this planet. And I like games, don't get me wrong. But I feel like that there's, there's something inside of us. There, there's some realities at work that make us feel like we have to show others how busy we are. We need to tell everybody else all the things we've got going on. Some of the things that are worthwhile, I'm not saying we, all of our lives are filled with frivolity. Like there are good things we do. But what is this propensity within us to be like, I've just got so much going on that, um, you know, that, that I've got to tell you about just how busy, just how busy I am. I, th- I think there's a few things at work. I think there's a few reasons why we do this. The first is I think in our minds, busyness is a measure of success. If we can show other people that we have a lot going on, we can show our worth and value by, by being able to say how successful we are at doing life. So the busier we are, the more successful we are. And so we start listing these things and we say them with this exasperated exhaustion. Like, but it really is kind of a, a pride in there, is there not? It's like, I'm tired, I'm so tired, but I can, do, I can manage all these things. It's a, it's a way of comparing ourselves to others too, right? There's so much worth wrapped up in this litany of telling people about all the things we've got going on, about how busy we are. The second thing, the second reason I think we do this is because we know actually internally that our priorities are often all sorts of out of whack and we're just trying to justify the way we live our lives. As a Christian, we, we think it should be God, family, others, Right? God, family, that's how we should be caring for other people. That's how our priorities should go. 
But in reality, oftentimes our priorities are self, work, family, extracurriculars, God for that 60 minutes or 70 minutes on Sunday, and then. And so we're not necessarily willing to change even if we know we're wrong. And so we we just say, well, we don't have time to change. We have to do all these things. We have all these things going on in our lives. But inside, we know that our priorities are all sorts of out of whack. Which leads me to the last truth, I think, about this idea that there's so much going on that we have all this business, we can't really invest in the things we should be investing in. When you're constantly complaining about how busy you are, about how busy, when I do it, I really think we're just trying to tell somebody how miserable we are. And we hope somebody will hear us. We know that our life is all out of sorts and we, and we need help. We're saying, hey, I, I'm, I'm, in a way I'm trying to prove that I'm better than you, but also I'm trying to hope that you'll help me figure this out. But there's something inside of us yearning for somebody to tell us the answers of how to, how to get these things in line, how to get these things figured out. I wonder how truly David, how happy David could have been if he's off doing these things all the time and then you see at the end of his life his family is in complete disarray. And not long after he dies, the nation he built is, is split in half. The nation he spent all this time working, putting all of his work in, putting all his time into, all this war he's doing, it barely lasts beyond his own life. How much of our lives are spent investing in things that will not last? That are propped up by all the time and effort we spend into it? But what we don't do is empower others to take on these things, empower others to be better than we are beyond ourselves. That's where I want to land this plane. That's where I want us to end this sermon. It's this idea of, of what did David do to care for his kids in, in a way that would help them succeed beyond his own life? What did he do to empower those around him to be able to carry on his legacy? What did he do to pour into other people rather than just constantly pouring into himself? I'm sure there probably are things that just aren't in the text, but the fruits of our work and of our lives will be shown. They'll be evident. Hopefully they'll know us by our love is what we say about us as Christians. But I can't help but think that if all five of his children are are in such disarray, if his nation is in disarray, if all his works, then he couldn't have been truly happy at the end. He couldn't have felt fulfilled. How much of our lives are spent in that same place? spending so much time on things that we think are important, spending so much time on ourselves that we neglect those that matter most. Do we neglect our parents, our children, our spouses, our coworkers, our classmates? I pray that the word that we hear from this story and these stories is that not that David was this bad, terrible guy, but that he, like us, was human. He made mistakes. He was complicated. But that did not mean that God did not have work to do in and through him. We too are human. We too make mistakes. But that does not mean that God is done trying to do work in your life and through your life. God wants to continue to use you in the messiness of all that is you. But it takes work on our part too to say I need help. To say that I don't want to be this busy, to say my life is disheveled, to say that I'm not pouring into the people I need to be pouring into, we have to take that action as well. That is called sanctification. 
And so may we be people who believe that God is at work in our lives. God is at work in your life. And may we be people who ask God to help us to take those steps we need to, to journey towards holiness together. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word and that you are speaking in into our lives. We thank you for the examples we have in the Bible. Complicated examples of humans that are just like us, struggling to figure things out, struggling to do what is right, struggling against our false selves, the humanity that prevents us from being the people that you want us to be. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask for you to free us from sin, to joyful obedience to you. Forgive us for those times we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us for those times we have not heard you speaking into our lives. You are our God and we are your people. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. At this time, I'm going to invite our communion stewards to come up and join me. The good news of Jesus Christ is as we hear.